my father-in-law often said, nothing good ever happens after 10 p.m. That's good advice. Uh, he, he gave it to us as a young and caged couple sitting in the living room. Uh, good advice. Um, David did not heed that advice. Uh, and we find him in the evening as the stars come out, the sun goes down, looking, sinning, and adding sin upon sin. His first sin is shirking the responsibility of being out with the army. Lazy, proud, accomplished, sin of pride, successful, powerful, respectful. No one can touch him. And so he feels as though he can touch anyone. And so he looks out and he sees a beautiful woman bathing on her rooftop. The sin of pride turns to the sin of lust, desire, and lust of longing for what he cannot have. The sin of laziness and lust and pride, we find the chains going further and further in David's heart. He acts upon these internal lusts and calls for her to himself. He commits adultery with her. Another chain. Another link in the chain. He does not stop there, does he? Bathsheba becomes pregnant has to cover that length of the chain as well. So what does he do? He calls her faithful husband, Uriah, to the hardest part of the battle and asks troops to withdraw. And the sin of lust and pride and adultery turn into murder and treason. Deception. Months go by as David is weighed down with this chain, seeing Bathsheba's child grow in the womb. He thinks about his sinfulness from the womb. Nathan calls his attention to his sin, and we know that David does not get away at all from this sin. He is plagued by the chain the, we would say the marks that come from wearing this chain for the rest of his life. And he pens this psalm in contrition after confessing his sin to God. And so we find in Psalm 51 a beautiful pattern of repentant faith for believers following their filthiness. And so it is a beautiful psalm. Even from the ashes of, a, of a, a life that is totally wrecked, we find a beautiful psalm. Following the service, we enjoy celebrating the Lord's table together, and I think this is a very fitting psalm for that. Let's be ready to repent and trust. Perhaps as you look back in your life, you find on its pages 
lust, lying, probably none of us treason, maybe adultery, maybe murder. In all of us, there are the heart sins that Jesus calls that lead to these outward sins. The sins of anger, the sins of desire, sins of pride. And so we can find in David's place that all of us fall short of the glory of God and need to come to Psalm 51 on a regular basis, if not a daily basis. The psalm itself is one of what we would call penitential psalms. Psalms of confession and kind of fits into our two major categories of psalms. Remember we saw all these five categories of psalms and, and most people find these nine penitential psalms of 6, 31, 37, 50, 101, 129, 142 fitting under uh, a, a title of penitential. But they kind of fit into lament And most people put them under the lament or complaint, and it's complaint about self. I mess things up so bad. I'm complaining about how wicked I am. But it also turns to praise because God is a gracious, compassionate, forgiving God. And so you have these two circles, right? The Venn diagram would be the lament psalms and the praise psalms. And you put them together where you have this penitential praise for forgiveness because I mess things up and I'm lamenting that. Okay, does that make sense? So you have a complaint psalm about myself and my sin, but a praise song about God's gracious forgiveness. And in between there, you have these psalms. Psalm 51 is the biggest one. (laughs) It is the stereotypical one. And I really find in here a, a personal opening of just... Wow, I mean, David gets real with all of us. He doesn't get away with his sin, but he gets real with all of us in confessing before all of us his sin. Here's the psalm kind of, what I like doing is to, to try to understand how a, how a psalm or how a text unfolds. I usually print it out in, in whole and read through it several times and try to get from there the big ideas. And what I got from Psalm 51, uh, and I don't know if you were struck with this too, but how many times David like commands God, appeals to him. Like he's on his, on his face, so he's not commanding. He's just pleading, pleading. But there's all these imperatives. Oh, God, please, please do this, please do this. And I highlighted, you're not supposed to necessarily read this, but I highlighted all of these in green. Because there's 21 of them. Um, And so you kind of have this first two verses where you have several of them. And I'm finding that an opening appeal for forgiveness. Then you have this little section where you have none of them. And that's our second main point today. And then you have a shotgun of all the rest of them. Most of them, though, verses 7 to 15, which will be our third main point. And then actually verses 16 to 19 really is an entirely different idea where he talks about sacrifice and and so we'll have four main ideas from the text uh, the first one's this opening appeal for forgiveness and then you don't see as many of those greens because here he's just going to confess all he's done and so you have an honest confession of guilt and then he gets back to the the pleas and so there's this continual again repeated appeal for restoration forgiveness 
And then with the final four verses, there's this appeal to sacrifice, but he's not content with it. It's a partial appeal to sacrifice, and in a very important way for all of us to end, uh, because we all need to come to the cross. Okay, so let's walk through this, and again, we'll have to walk through it quickly. But I do believe these words will wash over our soul and encourage our spirit and build us up in our faith in the gospel and the glory of our God to give us life again. So let's begin here with the first one, verses 1 and 2, an opening appeal for forgiveness. An opening appeal for forgiveness. Two questions. What does David ask for? Second question. What is the basis for him asking for what he asked for? Well, what does he ask for? He asks for grace. He asks for blotting out. He asks for washing and cleansing, right? Verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgression. So in both of these verses, we're seeing those rhymes, aren't we? The idea rhymes that we talked about in the Psalms. I'm not going to go into the details, but, but, but often you have this A-B-B-A. For those of you who know what chiasm is, where you have an idea rhyme that goes from one idea to the next one. And then he rhymes that idea and then goes back to the, the first one. Okay, So that's what you have in verse 1. In verse 2, you have a simple rhyme of ideas. Wash me thoroughly from iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Wash me from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. Right? Two idea rhymes. So he asks for grace. He asks for God to be gracious. And he asks for God to blot out his transgression. He, he, wants, he wants the, right, he looks at all his transgressions listed, and boy, oh boy, does he have a laundry list. David really does. God does not hide the flaws of the characters in the Bible. He opens them up and shows them to us. Even Paul, Peter. And so we find this laundry list, and David's like, Spill that ink blot, right? That that all over, all over my sins, please. Wash me. He finds the opposite idea there that you have all of these things, and if you can't blot them out, then then erase them, right? Wash me thoroughly. You find transgression there. You find sin there, right? Um, iniquity. You, you transgress or trespass beyond what God has allowed in your life. And as you do that, you get soiled. Um, you find on the other side of God's commands are things that make us uh, appear dirty, spiritually dirty. And, and so you, you've gone out and you've trespassed, you've transgressed God's fence and because of that, you are filled with uncleanness or iniquity, guilt. You have missed the mark of God's perfection in that you have sinned. And so you ask for his cleansing. Wash me, Lord. Cleanse me. But the most important part about these first two verses, and they really do summarize the whole psalm, is the basis. What is the basis for David doing this? Asking God to do this. It's the character and nature of God. 
It's not, Lord, the last seven months I haven't committed adultery. It's, Lord, the last seven months I haven't murdered anyone. Look at, look, at my, look at my track record the last three days, God. I've spent time meditating on you every day. No, that's Phariseeism. And so we each approach this psalm either thinking we're pretty good and looking down on David or we're identifying with David. Both cases need this psalm. Because all of us need the mercy of God through Jesus. And so he says, how can you be gracious? According to your loving kindness. This is one of our favorite Hebrew words, right? What is the Hebrew word? Somebody, somebody yell it out. Very good. Hesed. Right? This covenant loyalty. This commitment by God to be faithful to his marriage vows to us. The relationship vows. Because of that, and we would say that is based, you cannot get to Hesed without the cross. Based on the new covenant of Jesus being torn for us. Because of that, God can have compassion. He can display his compassion on us, his loving kindness on us because of Jesus. And so we have no graciousness, we have no washing, we have no cleansing unless we first come to God based on a covenant through Jesus. Because you have killed yourself in my place, because you have earned my favor through a perfect life in Jesus, I ask you for cleansing. That is where we find God's mercy and grace. Paul Tripp uh, wrote a whole book on this psalm. And uh, we're trying to summarize it in just a few minutes. But in this phrase, he recounts this story about a time when he was speaking at an event alongside a rabbi and two Muslim imams as they just shared the perspective of Christianity, Islam, and Judaism in regard to death and the afterlife. He says, the men on either side of me were gentle and caring. They knew their faith well, but they had one distinct disadvantage. They only, the only message that they brought into the room was the message of law. Did you do the pillars, the commands, the acts of righteousness enough? The only hope they could give that was the hope that somehow, some way, a person could be obedient enough to be accepted into eternity with God. The more they spoke, the more beautiful the gospel looked. The most significant moment of the evening came when we were asked about what we would say to a family of someone who had committed suicide. It's it at this moment that the gospel shone the brightest. I said, suicide doesn't change the paradigm. Think with me. Who of us could lie in our bed during the last hours of our life and look back and say to ourselves that we've been good as a person should be? Wouldn't all of us look back and have regrets about things we've chosen, said, or done? None of us is able to commend ourselves to God on the basis of our performance. In this way, the person who has committed suicide and the person who hasn't are exactly the same. Both of them are completely dependent on the forgiveness of God's grace in order to have any hope for eternity. 
It goes on and says, You and I share identity with the hypothetical suicidal man just as we have identified with the adulterous and murderous King David in Psalm 51. Our only hope is one thing. God's steadfast love, verse 1. God's abundant mercy, verse 1. We cannot look for our education, our family, our ministry track record, our theological knowledge, our evangelistic zeal, our faithful obedience. If you are thinking today that your faithful obedience will earn you anything before God, you are miserably lost. And you're just like every Pharisee that Jesus ever said, you are twice as much the child of hell as the repentant harlot. We have one hope. It's the hope ancient psalm looks to, and that is the mercy of God in Jesus. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. This is the glorious message of the gospel. And so David goes on with this confession of guilt, and I think this is where we all need to go. We have this honest confession in verses 3 to 6, and, and this is why I say we, we are all at the same place. Whether you have committed these sins that David committed or not, we do find ourselves all guilty, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Verse 3, first question, where is his sin? It's always present. David said, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. I know it. I, I, like, they won't go away. It's almost like he's burdened down with the guilt of this. It's breaking him. He can't get away from it. And so he confesses his sin. It's ever, always in front of me. We find David, like Lady Macbeth, right? what will these hands ever be clean? Not until someone washes them. Not until someone washes them. The NLT here takes too much liberty. Nowhere near what the Hebrew words say. But it does give us a sense, I think, of what David's referring to. It says, for I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. There's this haunting guilt of my past. I hope this message comes to you today to recognize that that guilt is gone at the cross. If you're trying to earn your way in any way, you have no freedom of guilt, no way to know whether you'll ever be enough. That's every religious system and some Christians who are mistaught. Because salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone. Because he knows that he sinned. And that sin is ever before him. He needs forgiveness because his sin has entered not just into the courts of Nathan's prophecy, Israel's courts, but into the courts of God alone. Who does he sin against? He sins against God who is just to condemn us. And all of us are guilty before God. All have sinned and fall short of his glory. We've all, like a sheep, have gone astray. None of us have any excuse. Well, I was hungry. Well, it was after 10 p.m. I was, I was tired. That's why I sinned. None of those are good excuses. All of us fall short and, and stand condemned in the courtroom of God. Why does he sin? This next phrase is so important. Uh, I, I, 
I did a video for this, and I didn't get it out in time, but hopefully I can finish it by this week. But um, there are several categories of verses like this. This one is, is so important to understand, to recognize why is David sinning? Look at what he says. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Okay, try to stay with me. This would be so helpful for you to understand this. Uh, Let's move through it pretty quick, but carefully. Behold, in iniquity I was born. This is the Hebrew. Behold, in iniquity I was born. In sin she conceived me, my mother. So so if you look at the Hebrew, it gets a little bit further away from the idea that he's talking about his mom's sin. He's not talking about my mom was sinful, like she committed adultery or immorality, and that's why I was born. That's not what he's talking about. And especially in the context, he's actually talking about himself. He's like, this transgression is always in front of me. It's always in front of me. You know what? This has been in front of me since I was in my mom's womb. That's what David is teaching. That's what the Holy Spirit of God is teaching. That you and I are sinful even in our our mom's womb. And so you find the NIV, the NET, and the NLT translated this way. And I think they do a good job. Surely I was sinful at birth. sinful Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. A couple of you ladies are expecting, sorry to say it, your baby is already a sinner. Wow. We we are not born tabula rasa. We are not born with a blank slate. We are actually born as sinners. And that's why we sin. It's not, well, we need to set up the perfect environment. We finally have a perfect society. No, everyone born since Adam and Eve chose to sin, that sin nature passed down to everyone. And we all choose to sin, yes. But we are all sinful from birth. And this is also another reason why we say that that there is not just life in the womb, but there is a moral nature. This is a morally culpable human being from conception, is what the Bible is teaching here. Not just a human in the womb, a sinner in the womb. This is why we find Jacob supplanting Esau, grabbing onto his heel from the womb. He's already a trickster. He hasn't even come out yet. What does God demand? This is is where our sins pile up upon us. Because not only are you sinful from the womb, you've chosen to sin your whole life, but you know what? God sees our sin. Look at this. What does God demand? He demands inner truth. It's not just you or I can, can say, well, I never committed adultery, I never committed murder, you know, so, like, I'm pretty good. No, he demands no lust and no hatred, right? There's this internal boiling that is the sin of murder, Jesus says. It's this internal looking that is the sin of adultery, Jesus says. And so we all stand condemned. We all stand with David and Isaiah in Psalm 51 saying, Oh God, be merciful to us. This is the gospel. No other place can we stand than the cross. 
And so we come to verses 7 to 15. I'm just going to have to shotgun through these, okay? But, but there's, there's, I guess that would be, whatever, real quick. Verses 7 to 15, he starts giving these appeals. Um, there's this repeated appeal for restoration, but they're precious. Memorize these. These are sweet to your soul to pray to God. Because we've all, I think we all have to find ourselves, first of all, in verses 3 to 6. So if you're here today and you're struggling with guilt, you get past this opening idea of forgiveness. You've got to get past your guilt. So verses 3 to 6, you have to confess it to God. You have to say, God, I'm going to stop denying it. Yes, I am a sinner. Yes, when I did that, when I lost my temper, that was sinful. And you repeat that before God. You stop making excuses. You own up to it before God, and you confess it. And then you give these repeated appeals for forgiveness. And they're precious. Look at them. Verses 7 to 11 gives appeals for individual results of restoration. Individual results for restoration. And then there's a few congregational or corporate ones. Look at the results of what happens when we ask for forgiveness and God forgives us. Number one, he says, bring back purification from putrefaction. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. This first phrase is central. It's so important to start here. Purify me with what? Hyssop. What is hyssop? I don't have hyssop growing in my yard that I know of. But it's kind of like a weed. It's kind of like a, 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 a little bit of a, a, a like pine needles type sage type plant that, you would be, that would be used to take. What, is, what would they use it for? Anybody? Somebody, there's two big cases where it's used in the Old Testament. Somebody kind of guess at one. Okay. All right. Another one. They used it there for this reason. The first, the Old Covenant, it was used right as the Passover lamb was slain. The families slain the, slew the lane. And then they took that hyssop and they dipped it in the blood and they had to use the hyssop to wipe the blood on the doorposts. It was also used in another case, and I think this is the one David's referring to, though that is very picturesque. It's also used in the case of leprosy. When that leper, rare as could be, eaten up by, by life's disease, I don't want to describe, but you, you can imagine the picture that they would have seen of someone living with no way to cleanse themselves, the blood, the pussing wounds, and, and then they come back to the community because the leprosy is gone and, and the hyssop would be, would be used to apply the blood to that person saying, you are clean. You can come to the congregation again. You can come back to the fellowship again. The blood is applied to you. And so David takes that and he says, I, am, I've, I have been living in sin. It's a disease that is eating me up and I'm done with it. Oh Lord, cleanse me. Find me clean and apply the blood. Without the blood, there is no remission of sin. And so we find the gospel here stated so clearly. 
You need the blood applied to find any cleansing, any washing. He finds the stains. He's wanting them to be gone. He's wanting to to have his garments like the, the, the new fallen snow. What a beautiful thing to come out early in the morning and see that snow. Especially when it's 90 degrees outside. But that's what David wants on the inside. Oh, Lord, wash me inside and out. It comes from the blood. The propitiation of the Lamb of Calvary is the only blood that cleanses our soul's leprosy. The sinful spots that fill the soul with sores and only blotted out with the wounds that were our Lord's. His blood and His alone will make us stand worthy. So all from now to eternity will sing His glory. Second one, verse 8, bring back gladness from sadness. Make me hear joy and gladness. There is a sadness in our sin. There's this pleasure for a season, but as those chains start to go tighter and tighter, we recognize this is brokenness. This hurts. I don't like this transgression. Like the child that's told, don't touch, don't touch, don't touch. It's hot. And they touch and ow, that hurt. And it kind of stings for a little bit. The stinging is what I, I, I'm no longer, I want with the joy again. Oh, Lord, help me to rejoice again. Bring back wholeness from brokenness. Let the bones which are broken because I've jumped over your fences be restored to actually like the idea of a leg that's broken starting to sing. I want to go back to church and sing again. I want to be whole. And this is the beauty of the gospel. That that one so broken, so sinful can actually be brought and restored to singing, rejoicing, and joy, and happiness in a moment because of Jesus. Spurgeon put it well, the figure is bold and so is the supplicant. He's requesting a great thing. He seeks joy for a sinful heart, music for crushed bones, preposterous prayer anywhere but at the throne of God preposterous there most of all but for the cross where Jehovah Jesus bore our sins in his own body on the tree preposterous to pray this way that your broken sinful life can be one of praise and glory except for the cross and with the cross we all leave singing because of Jesus bring back purity from stains And I think here in 9 and 10, there's almost an allusion to Genesis 1. Uh, He's saying, hide your face from my sins. I'm not going to run and hide from you, God, but you please hide from my sins. I'm not going to try to cover my iniquities myself, but would you please blot them out? Bring back faithfulness from sinfulness. Here's it gets to kind of the, the ultimate of need. Ex nihilo. This is the word create as in Genesis 1. Oh God, I'm so gone that I need a creation. Right? I find nothing good in of myself. I can't, I can't step up to you. I can't pull myself up by my bootstraps. I am lost and I am tohu avohu. I am formless and void. I need you to create something, a clean heart in me. Oh God, renew. And then he's like, I want a steadfast spirit. I don't want this just to be today on Sunday. I want you to to allow this to be Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. As you change me in the new new nature of the inside, it will continue to walk in newness of life. 
bring back closeness, and this is the closeness from separateness. Do not cast away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. This is what it's all getting to. He wants God. He doesn't want his sin anymore. He wants that close fellowship with God, and that comes through Jesus and Jesus alone. Can't go through the, all the theology here, but you can't be dogmatic about it either. But it does appear the Holy Spirit often came upon the Old Testament believers for tasks of strength, right? Building of the temple, Samson with war. The Spirit came upon him. The Spirit came upon him mightily. Jesus does say, as he's preaching about the Comforter, the Holy Spirit who will come, he says, he's with you, he will be in you. And then as Pentecost comes, there's this sign of the, this new covenant being a change in that each one of us are the temple of God and the flame of fire, the Shekinah glory of God is residing above each one of us saying, this is now my presence. My presence is in all of you. My Holy Spirit is in all of you. And so Paul says, no one has Christ unless he has the Spirit of God. And so we know that the Spirit does not leave us. Um, but there is this closeness of walking with God that we, we could feel as though uh, his, his closeness is not there. And I, there's two good illustrations of that. Like a father, as the son may run away in iniquity, it's not that the father has cast him off, it's that the son chooses no longer to sit at the table because of guilt. Yet as soon as he comes again, the father opens arms. Never, never are you not welcomed as a child through Christ as you repent and believe the gospel. Or the shepherd that sees the sheep wandering away, it's, no long, it's not that the sheep is no longer the shepherd's sheep, it's just the sheep is not walking closely to the shepherd. As the shepherd tries to bring him along, bring him along, bring him along. And then that sheep finds the joy of fellowship with the shepherd. And you and I find the joy as we cast off our sin and go to the cross. We can say, oh Lord, bring me close into your presence once again today. Let me feast on that joy. So bring back closeness from separateness. And then there's a congregational appear, appeal. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will be converted to you. And this is what David's doing. He's, he's fulfilling his promise to teach sinners God's way. Listen, don't, don't continue in sin. Repent and turn to the gospel. He will lead in praise. Because of this, he writes a psalm that Encourages all of us to praise God for his forgiveness and his mercy. Deliver me from bug guiltiness, O God. From taking someone's life. O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. And so David is saying, forgive me that I may lead in your praises. And we find him doing that. He will teach sinners and he will lead praises. There's the last section here, uh, partial turning to sacrifice. And I think this is interesting. Um, David's, often you see in the Old Testament, this time where the king repents. They, they repent and they come to the temple and they have these thousands of sacrifices, thousands of lambs. It's like over the top. 
And you know their heart is all in it. Whenever I read those things, you know what I do? I think that is nothing compared to what every single time I pray in Jesus' name. Those are all faint shadow. How silly to bring a hundred thousand lambs when you can bring... It's like Cain compared to Abel, right? Don't bring, bring Jesus and his blood. And I think we find that here in these last verses. There's this acknowledgement of inadequate sacrificial system. You don't delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with the burnt offerings. I mean, you're pointing to this idea that we need a sacrifice, but you recognize that it's just the heart of faith that's responding to, to your revealed will of sacrificing these lambs. And it's still not, it's just not right. I, and so I break my heart, my spirit. God, I know you're not despising that. And so David repents. He does bring sacrifice, but he looks forward to a future day of sacrifice. And that's where the psalm ends. A future day of sacrifice. By your favor, O God, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Sometime later, when the walls of Jerusalem are built, there will be this time where there will be a sacrifice that God delights in. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. And, and it's, this, it's this beautiful Picture of Christ that comes to us in the closing verses. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices. This future sacrifice that will be righteous. And so there will be one born in that area. Lived a perfectly righteous life. Who comes to that temple. Into that wall. Just outside of there, he's going to be said, well, John the Baptist will cry out, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Father will look down and say, this is the one in whom, what? My soul delights. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one in whom the Father delights, and he will be offered up in that place, in that spot, as a sacrifice, as a lamb. For all of your sin. All of your sin. Past, present, and future. Place it on the Lamb. And you will have no fear of death. No guilt. Behold the Lamb today. You can find the joy of the sacrifice, the righteous one in whom the Father delighted, who is the Lamb of God. Hebrews defines it this way, and we'll close. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, the one that was built much later, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, a different dimension, not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. This is the one who is the Lord of heaven, in whom the Lord delights.
with heads bowed and eyes closed, let me encourage you to come to him. Praise him for the forgiveness that you have. I really pray that none of you are weighted down by your sin right now. That you have all believed the gospel. But if you are still struggling to be good enough, you will never be good enough because you started out life without that kind of goodness. You started out life as a sinner. It's never enough. There are no weights and scales in heaven. The only hope is Jesus. So let me encourage you to come to him now. For those of you who have found cleansing as David has, then would you just take a moment to praise God in your heart? Thank him for the forgiveness. May that motivate a heart of faithfulness this week. Nothing else will motivate it. Guilt will not motivate you. Someone beating you over the head will not motivate you. Pastor yelling at you will not motivate you. What will motivate you is the love of Jesus and the gospel. It says, oh, Lord Jesus, thank you. Now, please, let me live for you this week. You've given me so much. Help me, Lord, to live a life by your grace that reflects your glory. Take a moment to thank the Lord for this. If you'd like to pray, I'll be standing in the back lobby. Be happy to pray with any of you or counsel any of you. In a moment, Pastor Andrew will close us in prayer.